1: The debate around Christian nationalism continues, and then we're joined by Greg Work to talk about his book, The Warfighter Soul. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really good to have you with us on a Thursday afternoon I know, Aubrey, it's the beginning of November, but I feel like we're stealing right now this beautiful weather, 70 degrees. Isn't it's like-
2: it unbelievable? We're just stealing. I know my, my, uh, I've got some family coming in town this weekend and they were like, do we need to pack, you know, a winter coat? And I was like, no, actually, you might even throw a pair of shorts in. Like it is lovely yes. out there right
1: now. Yeah, it's a beautiful day. So we hope that you are getting to enjoy it and we are glad that you're with us today. Got a great show planned for you. But Aubrey, Uh, As we get started, you and I, over the last couple months, I would say, year, have talked a lot about this phrase, Christian nationalism. Feels like a new phrase, right? Like, I don't feel like when we were in college, we were learning about Christian nationalism. I
2: agree. I would say since the election of Trump, I would say Christian nationalism has at least come to the forefront in, like, mainstream. My guess is the Academy has been talking about this for a while. But, yeah, you're right. I would say in the last few years.
1: And I think it got exacerbated, if you will, by the uh, January 6th. What happens there when people who are storming the Capitol also... Had uh, signs that said Jesus saves or things like that. And people were really, Mm -hmm. this here's an understatement of the day, uncomfortable by the (laughs) optics of that and what they saw.
2: Uncomfortable at the slight,
1: slightly. And and you might wonder, well, why do you guys keep talking about that? Well, did you know that I believe it is, we can look this up, the number one Christian book on Amazon right now? You're probably excited, like, is it mine? Is it mine? Is it mine? Is it mine? I believe it is still currently. I'm gonna look this up as we talk. purpose
2: life. <laughs> Seriously,
1: uh, uh, Harry is, Potter. Yeah, what's the guy's name? Let me look it up right now. Yeah, it is uh, Christian nationalism: a biblical guide for taking dominion and discipling the nations. That's oh. one of them. There's another one uh, that is out right now that is very pro-Christian nationalism, oh, okay. and so uh, not only is this still at the forefront. But it is actually, I would say, grabbing some people going, no, no, this is a positive thing. And so wanted to start there because as we go to the polls here next, next week, week. It, is, it is still important for us to consider what is our role as Christians? Yeah. What are we trying to accomplish? And Daniel... Uh, Silliman wrote over Christianity, uh, Christianity, I can talk today. (laughs) He wrote this just the other day. Christian nationalism debates expose clashing views of power as American evangelicals head to the polls. They disagree about the meaning of the contested phrase. And I appreciate that he brought this up. Yeah, because I do think there is just confusion right now about what we even mean when we use the phrase Christian nationalism, so let me read a little bit of what he says. Okay. He says, some Republican candidates are claiming the name A uh, best-selling Amazon art, uh, book argues that all real Christians are Christian nationalists. And a growing number of professional and amateur political commentators are arguing it to explain American politics right now. But there's still dispute about what we really mean. This one guy they interviewed says, I would say there's nine different definitions. Wow. But listen to this. A pew... Uh, research poll found that 45% of Americans think that the U.S. should be a Christian nation. This includes 81% who self-identified as uh, white evangelicals, but only 6% of those who want the U.S. to be a Christian nation think that the government should be run exclusively by Christians, and less than 1%, thankfully, say that they want the state to give special privileges to Christians. so what we're seeing, and I'll get into more of this, but uh, let me let you comment on this. What we're seeing is people in these interviews or these research are, are you know getting surveyed saying, "I want America to be a Christian nation, and we should work towards that." Mm-hmm. But what I don't mean by that is we should only have Christians in power.
2: Yeah, and yeah. Th-
1: some people might think, "Well, yeah, no, that makes sense." Others might say that runs against it. Mm-hmm. How do you have a Christian nation with non-Christian mm-hmm. leaders? How do you kind of Two part question. Mm -hmm. How do you understand this whole increasing debate um, as to what people are are meaning when they say, yes, I'm for Christian nationalism?
2: Yeah, it's funny because I just never and this seems so obvious, but never until this moment right here, Brian Fromm. Have I thought about the term Christian nation being connected to the term Christian nationalism? Isn't that funny?
1: I mean, they're so different. In
2: my mind, they're so different. Yeah. Because I one is like, sure, can America have some Christian values? Can it be primarily Christianity as the main religion? Sure. Uh, Christian nationalism in my mind is, and I'm looking here at something that Christianity is saying, and this is how I would also define it. It's an ideology that idealizes and advocates a fusion. This is the part I would talk about a fusion of um, the American life with the Christian identity, specifically meaning um, and no one would really say this, but I think it how it is. This is how it plays out. America is God's chosen nation. Mm -hmm. America is the promised land. We worship God and country. We have our Bible right beside our flag. Like that kind of mentality to me is how I define Christian nationalism,
3: mm.
2: where I would say, no, 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 no. For the Christian, you can pray for your country. You can love your country. You can want to see more Christians in politics. Amen. 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 But the Bible and the flag do not go hand in hand. God and country not go hand in hand. You worship God. You are in the kingdom of God. That's who you belong to, not the empire of America. So that distinction feels very important to me because I think one bends into idolatry and the other is about the worship that's of good. Jesus.
1: So the book I was thinking of that's not the, necessarily the bestseller, but it is the number one book right now, uh, is from Canon Press, and it's written by Stephen Wolf called The Case for Christian Nationalism. Oh, okay. Uh, I think this is – I had somebody here listen to this question somebody said to me the other day or clarification. They said, you know what's really important for people is when you think of America biblically, do you think – do you relate it more to Israel or more to Babylon?
3: Uh, (laughs) And I think when you begin to
1: unpack that, you go – now, it's a little apples to oranges, but when you begin to unpack that, you go, that's a powerful question. Are we trying to redeem the nation? Robert Jeffers, of all people, you and I have read the quote where he said – the goal of the church is not to save America. It's to save Americans.
3: Yes. Right, and
1: that, right. that we're not looking. People like Stephen Wolf and others would say, no, we're trying to, yes, save individuals, but also make the nation more Christlike right, and more right. Christlike. I guess for me, I would land more on the Jeffers quote there that says, listen. We know political power is corrupt. We know politicians tend to be corrupt. Those looking for power corrupt. If the church is trying to get political power, it's gonna to lead to the corruption of the church. Yeah. But yes, we do have a call to love neighbor, love citizen, and um, you know, want to see Americans, as Robert Jefferson said, come to Christ. And uh so I I touched on it there. But what's the danger in your mind of Christian nationalism? People are think, like, well, what's what's your problem with a Christian nation?
2: I think it's not yeah I think it's what's that old quote like um ultimate power corrupts ultimately yep. something that's absolute not ex- power absolute corrupts. power corrupts absolutely. absolutely yes um there's something about the posture of wanting power mm. that can come across in this um bent towards Christian nationalism Christian nation making our nation Christian it can reek of power and fear in a way that I think is very anti-Jesus, mm. who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who who had all authority, gave up that for the sake of the cross. It, it just... Any grab for power and and it's hard to get into people's intentions, I understand that, but any power grab to me feels antithetical to the gospel, mm. and I think that's why it's problematic is it becomes about power, it becomes about surviving, it becomes about like um some form of uh thriving that's mm-hmm. not godly and doesn't actually get down to like the nitty gritty of love God, love neighbor and humble ourselves for one another and, and so why is it dangerous? I think that's the reason why. It just feels antithetical to the gospel.
1: And the reminder that we have a king. We have a kingdom. Yeah. And this Christian nationalism starts to confuse that and blur yeah, those it. lines. That's it, Brian. And so I think we have to continue pounding this home, especially as we go to the polls. Yeah. Uh, some of you have already gone to the polls. But as we go on Tuesday, where are you doing that so that your nation can be saved and, and you can have hope? Or is your hope somewhere mm-hmm. else? Uh, is where I would go. Well, coming up next, along some of the same lines, I want to talk about weaponizing of language and what we see going on. Some interesting words from Dr. Albert Moeller. We're going to do that next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Uh, all right, Aubrey, I want to talk about the weaponization of language. Wow. This is a social media That's problem. light a
2: lighthearted topic for this uh, Thursday afternoon.
1: So I understand some people want to debate what happened, but. You can make the case that what happened to Nancy Pelosi's husband the other day Uh, is the result of weaponized language. You can make the result. You can make the case that what happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. You can make the case that what happened to Gabrielle Giffords years ago or what happened to Rand Paul from his neighbor whatever is weaponized language. And Albert Moeller talked about this the other day and wanted to ask, what's our role as the church and as Christians? And and I think mm-hmm. this becomes important, especially in the social media age that we mm-hmm. live in. This cable news, you know, talk radio, all of this stuff where weaponized language is like, uh yeah. it, it's a great way to make money and get a following.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You were a communications major, right? I was. So you're gonna, you're going to have to correct me on some of this, but There's there's uh, theories about speech, right? That uh, speech is broken down into three categories. One is what's being said. The second is what you mean by what you're saying. The third is what you want people to do because of what you said. And Mm. all speech operates on that level, whether or not we actually mean it or not. And so I think some people would look at this and be like, how can language lead to action? This is actually the history of language. Language has always led to action. And so I, I do think this concept of weaponizing language is not necessarily new, but it does feel like with social media, with so much being in the public. And a, I mean, I I know we keep using this phrase, but it feels so real, especially in the post-COVID world or throughout COVID. Language did get weaponized, inciting people to 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 incredibly violent acts. And again, I think those are acts that were in us anyway, but sometimes we just hear the right thing or we're triggered in the right way, or we get motivated enough to act violently that what was already there is like, yep, let's go. I'm going to go for yeah, it. Yeah. And so I, it, I mean, this is a hard cause I do, I do believe in the freedom of speech, sure. but if it's causing an alarming amount of violence in our neighborhoods, We might need to be thinking about our speech more carefully, especially for Christians.
1: And I don't think this is about taking away the freedom of speech as much as it's going, hey, especially you, Christian, you need to be careful with what you do. And especially those who have power. Mm -hmm. Did anybody come out and say, go do something to Nancy Pelosi's husband? No, but we've got politicians who made some very... dangerous said things or social media posts about Nancy Pelosi for a long time. Yeah, uh, We saw the same post Roe versus Wade. Yeah. People were saying about Supreme court justices. Right. Right. And with words come consequences. Cause you know what, when it happened, people might listen before January six, there were certain politicians who said things about, using words like rising up and yeah. overtaking and this. And then everybody's surprised when some people take those words literally, whether right. you actually meant it or not. Right. Doesn't really matter. Let me read to you what Albert Moeller said here. He said, Christians have to start out by saying that we know that violence in this kind of context, he's talking about Pelosi and all the mm-hmm. others, is just entirely wrong. Uh, he said, I want to speak to those on the right, to conservatives, of which he is one. We bear responsibility for weaponizing language in a way that can be misled by the very use of violent imagery can mislead someone who is diluted or troubled into thinking that the answer to a political problem is some form of violent act. The incendiary context of social media, many of the memes and themes and much of the violence that is being used is not going to age well. He said we must advocate for our own political party and candidates in the positions we see we we want enacted in law without personalizing this to the point that we demonize our political opponents to the point that at least some hearing us would think that what we're saying is that we would be well off without them on the political Uh, scene. Yeah, Uh, I there might be some people listening out there going, "Uh, didn't Albert Mueller do this at times? But that's Mm -hmm. I don't actually know. So that remains Mm -hmm. uh, you can you can make that decision for yourself. Mm -hmm. But. I totally agree with what he's saying here. When we take up, you got to speak for what you believe, but when you demonize other people and then either imply or flat out say that demonized person doesn't deserve to live or deserves to be quote unquote done away with or whatever, we shouldn't be surprised then when people take you at your word and go do that. And heaven help us when it's church people, when it's Christians who are the ones doing that.
2: I also I mean, okay, I'm just I'm this is not based on any research. So, like, don't nobody like uh, just hear me for what I'm trying to figure out right now. I also still feel like there's a whole lot of undealt with trauma post covid and now uh, using dangerous, demonizing, dehumanizing language is like um, manipulating people who are on the edge of a breakdown anyway. Mm. And so it's like the perfect storm of terribleness. You know what I mean? Like people who have been through trauma because of COVID. It hasn't been dealt with. Everyone's rageful. Everybody's angry. Everybody's still kind of coming out of that frenzy that we were all living in. And now people are easily incited. And so I almost feel like, I mean, always, especially for the Christian, our language needs to be seasoned with salt. But especially now when the world is is volatile, emotional, still reeling from the trauma of the past several years, like, let's just be extra generous and compassionate with our words and i'm not brian and i are not saying don't stand up for what you believe in Correct. at all but there's a way to do that without dehumanizing an image bearer and then letting and then seeing that inside violence
1: mm-hmm. and uh you know you might be thinking oh, sticks and stones whatever right like what what really is the danger of words might i point you to the book of james where called, James talks about the tongue, yeah, right, being the wow. rudder of the ship. Right, James talks about a spark setting off a fire. fire. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what we have to do away with these days is people who go, "I didn't mean that when I said that. I didn't literally mean go hurt that person. Right. I didn't literally mean you know bully that or whatever else." Mm-hmm. We've learned over and over again with our kids when it comes to bullying, but now adults and social media. Words not just hurt, but they incite. They matter. And the book of James was ahead of its time. That's so true. Saying the words you do can build up or they can tear down. Mm -hmm. It steers the ship. And uh, we have to take it that way. Uh, Moeller goes on to say this. We must be clear uh, about this, especially those of us who have influence and those of us who bear responsibility as leaders. One of the responsibilities of leaders is to call out the best in those who will follow us, not the worst. Wow! Don't you feel like our entire political system right now, especially on the far right mm-hmm. and the far left, mm-hmm. is calling out the worst in people? It's it's inciting Absolutely. people. It's lighting that flame, whether it be through social media or at a rally, or whatever else. And then we get surprised when people do things. And I, I really appreciate what Bowler says here. We need to be calling people out to their best. Let's end this. We're never going to change politicians, because yes. this is how you get elected. Right. But Cher, sure, what What do we need to say to the church, to the Christ follower who maybe pedals in this?
2: Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm thinking about, of course, kind of uh, those the folks sitting in the pews of church who are on their social media sharing or saying kind of despicable things about other people or especially church leaders who are kind of leading in this fashion. I do think like, I don't know, I I would get before the Lord Mm -hmm. and, and really do some diligence with God. Like, am I operating from a place of sin or from a place that honors you? And I, and I think allow the Lord to really search your heart Like, David, you know, search my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me and um, see if there might be a better way for you to steward the resources God has given you your steward, your language, steward, your social media Mm -hmm. use, etc. And do what Moeller's saying here. Call it the best in people, not
1: the worst. There you go. So, again, this is where we live in right now. And I would say, Christian, Christ follower, your words matter. They can point people to Jesus. They can tear down. They can incite And take a look at what you're saying and who you're following, I think, is a really good thing for us to do these days. Coming up next, Jen Wilkin writes this. Come on, let us adore him. Too many of our prayers rush past praise. I want to talk about prayer Hmm. and the importance of adoration and worship in it. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to the Common Good, AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on a Thursday. Aubrey, I've got to give people a heads up. Tomorrow, Friday, we got lots of fun things planned for them. We don't normally tell them the top five list, but (laughs) I'm so excited about it. Can I share it with them?
2: Uh, Share it with them. I'm afraid we'll get in trouble for it, but we'll see how tomorrow goes. But go ahead. I
1: am like, I I can't stop thinking about this one. I'm ready for this one. You and I are going to do a top five list that could be hilarious, and at the same time, a little bit heretical, maybe a little bit sacrilegious might be the better word.
2: That might be the better word.
1: Top five people in the Bible that we think would be, we wouldn't want to hang out we with. We wouldn't
2: want to hang out. They're, They're not hangs. chill hangs. Yes. yeah.
1: <laughs> and uh, we're we're going to go after some of the biggies, I think. So yeah, we're,
2: we're going to go after some of Join us
1: tomorrow fun. as we do that. And we would love to hear from you. Who are some of those People as well. All right, let's talk prayer, Aubrey. I'm actually at my church right now preaching through the Lord's Prayer a little bit. That's fun. Ew, just to bear the laughs. And so, <laughs> uh Jen Wilkin, do you know Jen Wilkin? You, every I, t- every yes. time I mention a female <laughs> author, you're like, I'm friends with her.
2: Yes. In fact, Jen Wilkin uh, wrote a book on uh the image of God. I used some of her research for my book, Known. She's a great, great, almost a great little author, but that sounded really condescending. She's a great giant author and uh, she 's fantastic
1: good well she was she wrote an article of Christianity today about prayer, and specifically the concept the part of prayer of adoration hmm. she says adoration, the offering of worshipful praise, so that 's her definition of adoration is widely recognized as a key element of prayer, but arguably it is the aspect of prayer we are quickest to neglect or rush by.
3: Interesting. Give me
1: feedback to what she said. Is she right that that is a key aspect of prayer, and is she right that we tend to... Not do it very yes,
2: much. I, I would say it's a key aspect of prayer. Uh, Our Father who out in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the yep. kingdom come, thy will be done. Like that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Also, I don't know, Brian, if you, I'm sure you do, because you're a church guy. I learned the Acts oh, prayer sure, method, sure. A C T S, adoration. you spend a lot of time there. Then you do confession. Then you do thanksgiving. Then you do supplication. But I would say, even if you grew up with the Acts prayer method, I still am like, I'm kind of trained to start with adoration, but I don't, I'll say a couple of things. God, thank you. You're so great. I love you. And then you move on. So yeah, I think she's right. (laughs) We kind of skip over that. God,
1: thank you. You're so great. I love you. (laughs) Uh, She says, here are three things that she has learned about adoration and prayer. One, adoration is exuberant. It does not have to be coerced or contrived. Adoration knows its object and has made a careful study of its object's praiseworthy attributes. Mm. Second, adoration is humble. It can't believe it actually gets to converse with the object of its adoration. And third, adoration is unqualified. It is offered for no other reason than because it is true. It's not flattery. We don't say, God, Mm. thank you. You're amazing. Now please give me what I'm about to ask for you. Uh, it really does set the stage for the rest of prayer. It says, you're God, I'm not. Yep. Uh, you're worthy of praise. You're worthy of worship. And even if you don't do the things I'm about to ask, you're still worthy of mm-hmm. praise. You're still worthy of worship. If she's right that we often neglect this, mm-hmm. why? Why would we neglect this part of prayer?
2: Oh, man, I think it's, a, it's kind of a convicting question and kind of a convicting point. Why do we neglect this i mean okay the the big answer the sunny school answer sin i mean you know what i mean like but what i mean by that is i do think we're so focused on self and me and what i want that i mean let's get beyond like are we praying at all if we pray it's kind of to jump to like our needs or maybe somebody else's Mm -hmm, needs we're not mm -hmm. all super selfish but you're you don't necessarily I don't think to even get into like right relationship with God honoring God for who he is remembering that God is king instead you just jump right into like almost the Santa Claus list Mm. list. I also think I'm really struck by this adoration as unqualified piece because I I could see how in one sense you would feel like oh I don't want to flatter God or I don't want which sounds so twisted as if you could flatter God but Mm -hmm. you don't want to flatter God I don't want to I don't want to be inauthentic. I don't want to try to like kiss up to him or something like that. And, and the enemy could almost like twist praise and adoration to make it something
1: like, like manipulation. That. Yeah, yeah. Rather
2: than what it truly is meant to be. I love how she says this unqualified. You praise God for no other reason than because it's true. And that's enough.
1: I hadn't really thought about this part of it. She says, it occurs to me that in heaven, Confession of sin will no longer be needed. Wow. Requests for daily bread will have come to an end. Wow. All of eternity will remain for adoration to flow from our lips. Mm. She says, It's been said. That if the sole purpose of prayer were adoration, that would be reason enough to pray without ceasing. Mm. One day we'll gather around a table crowded with those who have loved God the most and the longest, and on our lips will be unmitigated adoration. Why wait until that day? Mm. Tell the most praiseworthy of all that you adore, what you adore about him, and take your time. So, Let's get practical about this. What does adoration in prayer even look like? You
2: know, as I was even just now reading this, I was thinking, I think I need to experiment with this for a week mm. when I pray in my journal or when I pray in my car or when I pray in my shower, because I like most of us, I'm the kind of person who just like prays as I go. What if I spent the week only praising, you know, like never even got to a request or a need, but simply praise God. Here's what I think it starts. One of the beautiful things about going back to that Acts prayer method is I remember learning you praise God for who he is. And so that can be anything. God, I praise you that your creator and outside the world is so beautiful right now because of the fall. Thank you. I praise you that you are King and sovereign over all. I praise you that you gave us yourself and mm. that Jesus died on the cross. I think praise can also be opening up scripture, reading some of the Psalms of praise and praying those back to God is a faithful act of prayer um, and then just simply thank you, God, for you being you. I mean, you know, we don't have to always overthink or over spiritualize these things either. Praise God for who He is. Praise God for uh, His character, mm-hmm. His faithfulness, His salvation, His power. Praise Him for the things He's done in your life. And um, again, if you're if you need to borrow someone's faith, borrow the faith of the psalmists or other praise scriptures and pray those back to God.
1: I think that. We just get in ruts too when we pray. Like, I don't think a lot of us sit there going, "I don't want to praise God. <laughs> I don't want to do that." But I feel it in my own life. It's a lot of like, "Lord, I need you to do this. Would you please do this? Totally. Would you please?" And we're invited to request. Like, these
3: are not yeah. bad things. Yeah.
1: But it it jumps past the acknowledging He's worthy to mm-hmm. be asked, acknowledging that He is worthy to be praised, that we are. Uh, nothing apart from him, and I think when we just let you use the phrase Santa Claus before, I also think of the the idea of like a vending machine, like right, that's right. not that what prayer is Right, it instead points us to almighty, heavenly, all-knowing Father who loves us as his children and invites us into his presence mm-hmm. I think the adoration part is why it's first in Acts, right? It's not why yeah. it's cats or anything, right. you know,
3: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> tax
1: uh, <laughs> Hey look, it's scat uh, but it's it's we start with praise. Yes, we start with acknowledgement. Yes, and then we move down like confession. What's blocking me? Mm-hmm. What's says Thanksgiving? Thank you, and then it ends with Would you do this? Yeah. Would you do that? Yeah. I don't know. This is helpful for me. Convicting.
2: It is convicting.
1: Uh, but a a really good reminder. Well, coming up next, Aubrey, a, a important but difficult new book called The Warfighter's Soul. It's all about military veterans and what they deal with trauma entering back into society. There's a chaplain doing wonderful work with military veterans. His name is Greg Work, and Greg wrote this book, The Warfighter's Soul, and Greg is going to spend some time with us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Uh, I'm excited to talk to the author of a new book called The Warfighter's Soul, uh, talking about some really difficult topics and and much of his story. His name is Greg Work. Greg, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. We're really glad to have you Thanks join us. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? And also, uh, as you tell us about yourself, why did you write this book?
4: Well, I am um, um, a, a husband of 44 years, and I've got uh, 16 grandchildren, t- two great-grandchildren. Wow. And, wow. and uh, I'm still in the game, you know? That's that's what's good. <laughs> good for good. you, yeah. Uh, yeah, so listen, I uh, started out as a church planner. In San Diego, built a couple churches. Ended up um, being pretty successful at it, but when I was there, I didn't like it. So <laughs> one day, I was invited to um, to go to the Bud's compound in, in Coronado, which is where they raise up all the seals. Mm. Uh, that they do this rigorous, terrible training to them. And um, when I arrived on the compound, essentially that was where God tapped my heart and said, "This is your uh, this is your your place." Wow! So, wow! My wife and I left what we were doing, and we started working with military personnel from then until this present moment. I now own a international security firm called Atlas Aegis, where we do international security in some very dangerous places. Mm. And um, we hire all veterans for the jobs, and it's uh, extremely cathartic and helpful for their health and well-being. Mm. That's, that's it.
1: That's great, man. That's
3: great.
2: Greg, I know in the book, you dive into some pretty difficult topics, uh, trauma, suicide, et cetera. Talk to us about the reality of veterans, veteran suicide today. What are some of the reasons behind it? How big of an issue is
4: it? Well, I think the issue of suicide alone is a very, very uncomfortable subject, mm-hmm. for just about all people in societies. You know, every 40 seconds, there's a death
3: mm. uh,
4: from suicide plus 25 attempts. But in the, among veterans, you know, to me, I always put it this way, two's too many, once too many, mm. but there's right now between between 22 and 44 a day veterans are making the incredibly difficult choice of uh, ending their own lives due to the trauma that they experienced in combat and their inability to integrate into society in a, you know, in, a in a way that, that, that makes them feel like they're a, a part of it. Mm. Um, often society... At best, treats the veteran with a mild neglect simply because they don't understand them. And that's often true.
3: Mm. Um,
4: I wrote the book because I wanted to do, I wanted to help society understand the veteran. And then, secondly, um, let the veteran know that there's hope for them. Where most of them just don't have it.
1: Yeah, and let's dive into that a little bit more, Greg. How so? Most of us listening, or myself included, haven't served and haven't come back from overseas. Help us understand the challenges that service members face when they return, when they get back to quote unquote civilian life, and and maybe how give us some pointers on how we should interact with veterans as they return.
4: Yeah, so there's a great great movie out called The Hurt Locker, and there's a, there's a mm. point where where the guy comes back home and he's with his wife and child and they're going down to the grocery store and she asks him to go get some cereal. So he goes to the cereal aisle and he literally cannot make a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, there, here's a guy that has to make decisions, life and death des- decisions for six months to a year at a time, but he can't pick out cereal. Mm. Uh, there, there's a, that's a great depiction of how difficult it is for veterans to come home or active duty to come home because their world is so different there than here. Um, the one thing I can say this about a veteran is oftentimes, in fact, often, more, more than most, they come home with some sort of traumatic uh, combat experience. Um, the trauma, traumatic combat experience creates stress. It's kind of like if you put your hand in front of your face and everywhere you look, you look through those fingers. Mm. That creates stress. That's what it's like for the veteran. The veteran is dealing with traumatic events that are not correctly yet um, restructured. Which is one of the things we write about in the Warfighter's Soul. We teach them how to restructure trauma, hmm. so that they're not looking through something that brings them stress and brings them to a place of depression, alcoholism, and all sorts of other negative things. Hmm.
2: And Greg, I'd I'd love to hear more about that work of restructuring trauma. How do you even begin uh, that process?
4: Well, it's the, number one, it begins by the veteran has to own the um, the trauma. So Oftentimes in the military, you know, you're supposed to suck it up. Um, mm. I work with these guys. They, they're very beautiful, brutal communicators. They're brutal with each other. And so, and that's the way it has to be to be the best in the world. And, but uh, look, there's every one of them is a human being and yeah. human beings have their breaking points and trauma, whether it come from military service, whether it come from childhood molestation or anything of that nature, trauma is like that hand. The minute it happens, that hand is what you look through, until that trauma, that hand, is restructured to a memory, which means Mm -hmm. you have to process through what you have experienced by, number one, owning it, number two, restructuring it, number three, uh, detain or, I'm sorry, um, refuse to allow it to have um, authorship over your life in the future. And then the second thing we do is we we call this treatment power, pattern, purpose. Mm -hmm. So then you have to deal with the pattern. I know we don't have a lot of time here, but the book will kind of log yeah, draw no,
3: you through. Yeah, that all sounds That's fantastic.
1: And, and Greg, this might be a, a little bit of a strange question, but whether it be military veterans or whether it be people like you said dealing with, you know, childhood trauma or whatever, what in the end, what does success look like? Like, are you ever over it? Are you ever better? Yeah. Or is this a lifetime deal? Help people understand that.
4: No, no. They, look, look. You can't do it. you can't do anything about the memory, but you can use the memory. To build strength on, you can't. As long as the as long as the trauma is what you're looking through, you cannot grow. You simply build a pattern. You go every day. You look at life through that. You look at your wife, your kids. You look at your future. You look at your potential. If you're a young person. You're looking at, at at everything through that, and it and it skews the purpose for which God has placed you on the earth. Mm. So. So what what we've learned to do is we take that, we, we break the power of that, and there's an immediate reaction. Hmm. I've done it with, with children all the way to the, the hardened warrior. There's an immediate reaction to the freedom. Wow. The problem is after that freedom, you have to then deal with how to break the pattern you've developed in looking at that, particularly looking at life through that trauma. Mm. And uh, so it's a a really fun thing. We have to actually have two things in the book. One is called building memorials. And the other one is power, uh, pattern and purpose. Mm. And and let me say this real quick. Yeah, a person who defines their life through a trauma will never see their purpose.
3: Wow. You
4: you cannot see your purpose. You have no hope. Mm. and Without hope, you are led down Mm. the drain towards suicide. Wow! Oh,
2: your book looks so fantastic. It sounds so fantastic, Greg. Again, it's called "The Warfighter Soul," engaging in the battle for the warrior soldier for the warrior soul. Where can our people find out more about you and connect with the work that you're doing?
4: Oh, they can just call my cell. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they can. You know, we're we're actually uh, really surprised at the success of the book. And so we're we're building a huge support structure for it as we speak. But you can go online to thewarfightersoul dot org, and you can contact us and our team, and uh, grow with us. What we're hoping is that we can get thousands of people to get better, mm. and then they become the people that help others get better. Right now, we're losing too many. Yeah, it's it's absolutely. We look, we owe our veterans. Society owes them. Yeah. So, so if we can get a, a society better. We can get a society equipped to help each other.
1: Greg, you're doing such so important good. work. Thanks for spending some time with us again. The book is called The Warfighter Soul. That's The Warfighter Soul. The author there is Greg War. Greg, thanks so much, man. It's great to meet you. And thanks for all you're doing. My pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
2: Churchgoers increasingly prefer a congregation that shares their politics. And later, it's that time of year again. How do we set healthy boundaries around the holidays? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday evening. We are so glad that you're with us today. If you've missed any of today's show, especially the amazing conversation we have with Greg Wark, he's the author of The Warfighter Soul, we'd love to invite you to go back and catch up on our podcast wherever it is you stream or download your pod podcast, pad costs. I almost said <laughs> podcast. We also would love to engage with you on social media. We are at common good talk on Twitter, Instagram, and what's the other one? Facebook. Facebook. we are talk about Twitter a little bit later today, Brian. Okay. i got some questions for you. Um, but Lifeway just put out some new research. Lifeway is an organization that tends to pull a bunch of different church goers and find out things that gives us as church goers and church leaders information And they found this half of U.S. Protestant churchgoers, 50 percent, say they prefer to attend a church where people share their political views. And 55 percent believe that to be the case at their congregation already. So what that means is half of churchgoers. So, you know, literally, this is split. Want to be at a church where they're around people who vote the same as Mm -hmm. them or think similarly politically than them. Half of churchgoers are okay. Not doing that. What has been your experience of this as a pastor, Brian?
1: So I don't even think that people know it. And that's what he or whoever did this survey. I think one of the things they uncovered was they already think people all agree with them. Mm. And I don't think we should long for churches that all agree with us yeah. uh, outside of orthodoxy, like outside of like the essentials. Uh, It's more important that you and I, Aubrey, agree on the lordship of Jesus than it is about whether we're voting for candidate X or Y. It's more important, and and it doesn't mean things aren't important. They are important, but you and I should be able to be in fellowship as churchgoers Mm -hmm. and disagree on cultural issues, disagree on voting, disagree on some other things, and be able to... Debate them and go back and forth, mm-hmm. but still be in community mm-hmm. versus if you were like, listen, I want to be in church with you, but I believe nothing about this Jesus thing. I'd be like, well, that's different. It's going to be problematic yeah. for us. Yeah. So, but unfortunately, what's often happens now is we have a harder time with people who disagree. David French wrote this on Twitter. We have a harder time disagreeing with people who disagree with our politics than our religion.
2: Dang. And so –
1: That within the church, your church should not be all Republican. Your church should not be all one race, all rich, all whatever. That's not what we're meant to be. And that's not how heaven's going to be. And so um, it's meant to look more like a community and a Mm. family uh, that's diverse, diverse in race, diverse in economics, diverse in politics, diverse in all of these things. And so this seems like we may be, going in the wrong direction. Here. Yeah,
2: this is interesting. Um, uh, Lifeway research says that younger churchgoers are more likely than older ones to prefer sharing a pew with someone in the same politics. So that's interesting. Generally, generationally, we're seeing a change. Almost three in five of those under 50, 57% want a congregation with people who share their political views compared to 40% of those who are 50 to 65, 41% 65 and older. Ethnicity and education also plays a role in this. Denominations play a role in this, etc. Churchgoers with evangelical beliefs, 44%, are less likely than churchgoers who don't strongly agree with the four core evangelical theology statements. They say they prefer a church where people share their political opinions. So I think this is interesting, and you you nodded to this, Brian, that half of people want to be worshipers, worshiping Beside people who share their political views, but may not know if they are or if they yeah, aren't. Yeah. I'm sure some people do, but I think people might be shocked to find out, you know, half the people in your church actually don't vote or think about voting issues the same way you do. And that's it. I agree with you, Brian. I think that's sort of the. I wouldn't say the goal is not knowing, but the goal is the diversity.
1: I've worried. Maybe I'll do it soon. I've. I've wanted in my own congregation to do a blind survey. So anonymous Anonymous. survey. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Just who do you tend to vote for? Or who did you vote for? You know, maybe next presidential election comes by. Who did you vote for? Because I hope that I would find that it would be a pretty diverse cross-section. Interesting. Like, obviously, I do believe most Christian churches, just by demographics, we know are going to tend to vote Republican. But, man, I would feel really bad if it was, like, just across the board.
3: Yeah. Right. And yeah. I would be
1: like, I hope that when we do cut the cross section, you and I are right to go, well, more people would be surprised by how diverse it is in thought, how diverse. Yeah. I I hope that's the case. Cause it should be the case. I'll be right.
2: Absolutely. Because, should be the case.
1: because we aren't aligned by our politics. We're not aligned by even our culture war, whatever. We're not aligned by our economics or our race or whatever else. We're aligned by being under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and w- when we move in this direction that the survey seems to be implying that we're moving, we're allowing other things that aren't primary to become primary yes, that's and it. and then those watching from the outside get it they mm-hmm. people go who might come and think about being a part of your church are mm-hmm. like, "Well, no, thank you, and echo chambers are never helpful, yeah, these kind of bubbles are never helpful uh, and so I hope they're wrong i I hope that if I did a an anonymous survey You'd of my find. church. I go, woohoo! We are, we are diverse. Do we are you this.
2: think your church? Okay, this. Do you think your church knows how you vote? And do you think they care?
1: Ooh, two important questions. Yeah.
2: I think, And I'm asking you as a pastor. That's the pastoral question. I think
1: people assume how I vote. Mm -hmm. I think if anyone listens to the show, they probably have better guesses. I've never gotten up and said, this is how I vote.
2: Okay. I've never done
1: that. Um, I've never said after the fact, this is who I voted for. No. So they've never heard it from my mouth. So it would be assumption. What was your second question? Because it was important. Do they
2: care? Meaning, if you were to say, I voted X... Would you have a slew of people leave and a slew of people go woo or or um would you yeah do the do would people care whether they be like great that's who we voted for I didn't or I uh, yes I did same you know like would it be would it be an issue
1: I think so yeah I think we hope that it wouldn't yeah. be and I don't think people would like there would be mass exodus yeah. I don't think it would be a leaving scenario yeah um but you know I, I suspect that if I especially got up and was like, hey, I voted for this really progressive Democrat uh-huh. for a reason X, Y, and Z, there would be some follow-up meetings, yeah. <laughs> not necessarily with the elders or this, that. I think there'd be a lot, hopefully there'd be lots of coffees of people going, hey, can we talk about that? Right, or, right. And I'd be, we'd be foolish to go, nobody would leave yeah, over that. People yeah. are, people are passionate. What about you? How would that play out for you? So, Your church is a little different.
2: Our church is a little different. I would say our church demographic is a little more probably progressive politically, um. What uh, Kevin was very clear that he did not like Trump. He's yep. never said who he's voted for ever, but he was, he was on at least on social media very clear about that. And uh, lots of people were like, we don't want to know who our pastor votes right. for. And I wondered, is it true that they don't want people to know who their pastor votes for, or is it that they don't want to know if their pastors voting differently than them? That's that's <laughs> yeah. I think a, another question I have is, is it important for people? to be pastored by someone who votes the same way they do? And if so, is that an okay desire? Or is that that confusing politics and theology and church and state and all of that stuff? I
1: I would hope, again, we're being a little Pollyanna here. I would hope that people would say hey, I don't really care who you actually pulled a lever for. I'd like some explanations. I would love to talk yeah, to you about yeah, it. Yeah, help
2: me understand. But that that
1: would not be a deciding factor, stay or go. Yeah. Church, oh, I'm not going to this church because my pastor did this. I would right. hopefully we're we're adult enough to go, hey, I disagree with you. Could we go to coffee? Yeah,
2: and I think that's of the dream like you were saying that you might be pollyanna about this right we've got unity in our diversity that that might be that might be the dream anyway really interesting to think about in our congregations do you want to go to church with people who vote differently than you do you want to be under a pastor who votes differently than you and why does it even matter i think it does matter actually because like brian said we need that diversity we need that nuance we need those relationships Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson, alongside my co-host Brian Fromm, who just said he'll never follow me on Be Real, and my feelings are hurt. Wait, there
1: are there's some context to it, because <laughs> I'm not following anybody else but my wife and children.
2: I'm your co-host.
1: You are not my wife, you are not my children.
2: I'm your co-host. There's a category of that's value high, that's there. If this, is,
1: if this is the family feud... <laughs> And it said, "What are your What are the top five most important relationships in Brian Fromm's life?" You're, yes, co-hosts could be up there. Doesn't but it's, mean, not, it's, it's not, not going to translate reading. to
2: social media.
1: Okay. To, to Be Real. Like, I,
2: I got on this so I can see my kids. I've posted pictures of you on Be Real when we're in the studio before. I need you to know that. There you go. Now you'll Thank never you. know. You'll <laughs> no. never know. I
1: do know. You just told
2: me. <laughs> I guess that's true. I ruined it. I ruined my plan. All right. Well, sometimes at the end of every show, we like to put a smile on your that's face. Right. We like to make you laugh. We like to make you think. One of the places we go for some really good news is a place called The Week, where they aggregate good news stories from the previous week. And so we're going to share some of those stories with you as you head home on this evening. Brian, you want to kick us off?
1: I would love to. The first one is this. Ranger reflects on 150 years of Yellowstone. Life at the park is never dull. Has he been a ranger for 150 years? (laughs) (laughs) I need to go live at Yellowstone.
2: Seriously. Seriously.
1: Yellowstone National Park turned 150 this year. Can I just tell you something? Do you follow, speaking of social media, do you follow Keith Conrad, our executive producer?
2: I followed him on Twitter, but because I'm not on Twitter, I haven't seen it in a while, but so yes.
1: Keith, whenever anything like The Nation or Yellowstone has a birthday, he always says, Happy birthday, Yellowstone. You don't look a day over 145 or something like that. So it's coming. I think it's coming. He's right. a funny
2: guy, our Keith Conrad.
1: Rangers like Rick Jael, J-E-H-L-E, I'm going with Jael. are stewards of the land, preserving it for today and tomorrow. that. I don't own Yellowstone, he said. I'm lucky because I've been able to work here and make a career out of someplace so spectacular and hopefully... Do more good than harm in the long run. But ultimately, this place doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the future, to my kids. It feels like a Whitney Houston song. Seriously? And their kids <laughs> and the rest of American public life and the rest of the world. It goes on to tell us all about Yellowstone. But the nice. big thing here is Yellowstone, 150 Happy years birthday, old.
2: Happy birthday, Yellowstone. But I'll let
1: you in on something. Yes. It existed before it was called Yellowstone. <laughs> That's a so. good point. So it's a lot older than 150 years is what show you're up saying. just 150 years ago <laughs> That's today. a really
2: valuable point, Brian. Thank you for that. Oh, this one's good because this is Disney themed haunted mansion designer stops by family's Halloween display inspired by the ride. Hitchhiking ghosts, Madame Leota, the singing busts. One California family has bought, brought the occupants of the haunted mansion to their front yard for Halloween. Mike and Don Stanley and their son Wyatt have spent the last 10 years putting up jaw dropping Halloween displays in their home. In California, and this year they wanted an homage to the Haunted Mansion, their favorite ride at Disneyland. We've always wanted to give it the respect it deserves and go really big, Mike told ABC Los Angeles. Their neighbors joined in on the fun and made their own front yard displays based on the Haunted Mansion, which first opened in 1969. The street has become its own attraction, with people walking by each house to take in all the spookiness. One very special guest also visited Bob Gurr, one of the original (laughs) designers of the Haunted Mansion. He received a special tour plus a cake to celebrate his recent 91st birthday. Bob Gurr gave his stamp of approval, so if we can get his stamp of approval for how good it is, it's good, Don said.
1: Bob Gurr's last name is spelled G-U-R-R. How is it not spelled (laughs) G-R-R-R-R-R?
3: Bob Gurr.
1: Number three, Arizona Mom opens nightclub for people with disabilities at Club Zeus is it are we not saying this like a like the guy <laughs> in Serenate Live, Stefan
3: oh, yeah. at Club Zeus
1: it's all about having fun and letting loose no explanation necessary this once a month dance party held in Tucson Arizona was created by Chrisson Black and named after her 4-year-old son who has autism black told good morning america that oftentimes parents of children who have developmental delays have to explain their child's behavior And while many people are understanding, others aren't. And that could be really hard to deal with. The goal of Club Zeus, which is open to people 18 and older who have disabilities or special needs, plus their families and friends, is to have everyone feel uh, included and welcome. They come in full glam and they look gorgeous and it's just incredible to see them and their confidence and it shines. Uh, Being her son's advocate is one of the greatest things she told GMA. Being this mom is amazing, but being there to really defend and support him is probably the best best oh, thing. Club Zeus, I like it.
2: That's so cute. Okay, Club Zeus. I know I love Stefan on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> so so funny. Probably really inappropriate too. Okay, but
1: hilarious.
2: Bike buses make getting to school a lot more fun. We've talked about this. More and more kids are getting to school via bike buses, relying on two wheels instead of four to get to class. A bike bus is when a group of people cycle together on a specific route. And when kids are involved, these are led by adult volunteers. Riding bikes instead of driving to school is better for the environment. Kids get moving and it clears up congestion at campuses. Devin Olson organized a bike bus in his Minneapolis neighborhood and in the last six years has led 11 semi-annual events. Cycling creates connectivity between all walks of life, Olson told today, with parents and kids getting to meet peers they ordinarily would never interact with. His first bike bus had 60 participants, and each one since has had more people. They begin at 8 a.m., and after going over safety instructions, the riders get started on a two mile ride. It's nothing but laughing, yelling, and pure joy, Olson
1: said. Oh, that's fun. it's fun. cute. All right, last one. Hey. Okay. You know, we love old people on this show, <laughs> and we love veterans. That's so here true. we go. Hundred-year-old vet surprised with a VIP trip to see his favorite football team. Oh, I love it. After surprising his new friend, one hundred-year-old William Goode good? good Goody, with a trip to Disneyland, Isaiah Garza had another trick up his sleeve. Garza recently went viral on social media when he shared how he worked with Good's caretaker to get the World War II veteran to Disneyland. They never met before that, but oh, you and I did the story. Yeah, we did the story. But bonded during their visit, and once Garza saw how much Good enjoyed their day together. He wanted to give him another unforgettable experience. Garza decided to take Good to see his favorite football team, the Los Angeles Rams, and got him onto the field where he was soon approached by a familiar face, wide receiver Cooper Cup, Good's favorite player. You're really good, Good told him. Thank you, (laughs) Cup replied. I hope we can put on a good show for you today. Cup signed a custom jersey. That had been made for good, and then the centur- centenarian centurion.
2: centurion. <laughs> you're a pastor. <laughs> I was say,
1: Show him you're a pastor without telling him you're a pastor. <laughs> then the centenarian was also able to try one on one of the Rams Super Bowl rings. He also started the game at left guard. I'm just kidding. <laughs> at the end of the game, Good declared it's one of the happiest days of oh, my life. Oh
2: man, this I like this relationship between these two. I hope we keep. And then he got a stories. flag
1: for unsportsmanlike conduct.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, man. Well, those are some good news stories. We hope those put a smile on your face. Centenarian. 100-year-old is yes. another way to say that. If, yes. if
1: Jesus were taken to the cross by a 100-year-old, it would have been the centenarian <laughs> centurion. <laughs>
3: Yes, but I got it. I got my words. Okay,
2: we're all all set. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I don't even know how to end the show today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160.